Hello, greetings, friends. It's Chapo. Thursday, August 18th. And in just a little bit, I will be talking to Aaron Good about his book, American Exception. But before that, buddies, friends, you know, let's get into it. Let's talk about the news of the day. I guess Liz, I want to start with this because uh, a ton of people got mad as hell at me yesterday for saying this. But we talk about Liz Cheney. We talk about Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney lost her primary to be the only congressperson from the state of Wyoming, a state with um, 10 people in it. Um, but yeah, she, she has been defeated. Everyone saw this was coming. Even before, the thing is, though, I think like even before she took, I think she only took her brave stand on January 6th because I think it was pretty clear that like she was not going to win that primary to begin with. Yeah. So my, the point I made, and I, I was like, I think there's a good chance she's going to be the Democrats' vice presidential nomination no, in 2024. Absolutely. No, no, yeah. no. You don't think so? No. No, they're not even okay. The only person that would do that is if you put Peggy Noonan in charge of the party. No, because I don't. I'm sorry, I don't even think they're even stupid enough to do that because it's like they have to know. They have to know, right? Abortion is the only thing they have, and she's fucking pro life. Like when Dobbs happened, she was like yippee. She fucking threw her hat in the air and shot celebratory six shots. Five shots is bad. Six shots is happy. <laughs> I just, I don't see it. I mean, they have to know that's the only thing they have, right? Uh, I think by now, maybe probably. Uh, yeah, and uh, Liz Cheney's pretty pro-life. Uh, well, very pro-life. So she's a Republican. But, I mean, I guess, like, you know, half kidding. I, I, I could see it happening. But the point is, all these people would still vote for that ticket uh, as well. Because, you know, they have to. I think she would what have they? to have, I think she would have to have a public uh, uh, revelation. Oh, actually, I'm pro-choice now. But I think they would accept that. In fact, they would be gratified by one of their enemies coming to, around to their point of view. They love I, that. Maybe. I don't know. It's just like so many moving part. Like, I'm not saying that they couldn't come up with like a shitty choice. They already did. But it just like, I think her stardom is limited to the biggest TV heads, which so is who votes in Democratic primaries. But it's like, I okay if the choice is liz cheney or stick with fucking kamala i think they stick with kamala so that means she's probably going for some sort of msnbc tv show yes bing boom okay bong bing bong we saw that bing bing bong bong bing bing, bing. So yeah like all the people saying i was gonna bet money for this um i never was gonna get bet money on this uh, i'll never be held accountable for anything i say on twitter i just like to establish that yep up front but a few, a few other uh, sort of uh, midterm nuggets coming up. I mean, Dr. Oz, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, that, that, that race continues to be. Got a lot of news headlines because of his, uh, his shenanigans and oafishness. Voters responding huge to Oz's disgusting CHP cuckery. <laughs> Pennsylvanians are very religious and they are disgusted by coastal Kamal worship <laughs> and anti-Ottoman behavior. The fact that all Oz's families and family and friends, all his actual Turk friends, have Kamal tattoos and started Kamal Appreciation Societies. These are, they're, look at Pennsylvania. They don't have a coast. Where would their coast be? On a river that's gross? One of those brown rivers? These are people who want the empire back. It's true. Like the average Minnesota Republican voter is essentially an AKP voter. They don't have time for CHP. I am so interested by like, okay, let's say Fetterman, let's say his heart explodes. Let's say he dies. Oz like he is hypnotized and stops doing weird stuff he stops he stops going to grocery stores and saying 
my wife wanted to make her own Tootsie Rolls and <laughs> the ingredients cost $75 and the, 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 the fucking tartar sauce that we dip the Tootsie Rolls in is even more expensive. Let's say he stops doing that. How does he explain to congressional Republicans and Senate Republicans who are maybe a little more sophisticated, like what his belief, like that he's not an AKP guy? Yeah. How like, does he explain, like, no, we're secularists. Yeah, like, we're trying to make a deal here. We're trying to build a casino in Cappadocia at, with the AKP, and you're not even going to help <laughs> us with this? What a good are you here, Oz? Yeah, it's, I just don't know why he did this. The run for, it's baffling. I guess they just get bored. And then Trump becomes president, and they all kind of realize, oh, like, this really is open for grabs for whoever is famous enough. And then it's like, they ask themselves, am I famous enough? Am I a famous enough dude to become president or at least senator? And then they just have to go for it. Otherwise, they're going to be bothered by it while they're doing while they're holding up like the big the big like wad of fat to show like how much, you know, why you shouldn't eat Pringles or whatever. (laughs) 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 You're just thinking, God, I could I could be in the halls of power right now if I had just gone for it. That man, real life really is veep. There's so many just like rich, like miserable people who are like, what if I was miserable doing a different job? Yeah. Yeah. What if I was miserable and I had to wear a suit? <laughs> what if I was miserable and every fucking four years I had to go to Iowa and eat D-grade meat on a stick and, <laughs> hey, shake, hey, and hey, shake people's hands that for That pork chop hours? on a stick was good. Honestly, surprisingly yeah, delicious. Yeah, I thought it was going to be dry, but it was very moist and yeah. delicious. Well, you guys liked it because you didn't have to eat it. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, we were not true. being required to eat the damn thing. I'm sure that those guys must just hate every one of those compulsory Fuck, regular guy meals. Fucking think like your job, like basically all you do if you are like not a backbencher, if you're a public facing member of the party is you just do small talk. Yeah. That's your job. That's, That's horrifying. Oof, brutal. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, like, I and mean, then the other thing was that it looks like the um, uh, the Republican Senate uh, like committee, like the official fundraising arm, uh, has like basically cut off Dr. Oz and also cut off Ron Johnson. Very interesting in there, Wisconsin, yeah. and like yeah. that that could be like more than anyone getting him out would be that, that would be a boon. That would well, be a for boon me, for, yeah. just personally, as someone who who hates him as an on an individual Wisconsin based level, uh, and yeah, that would actually be a pickup for the Democrats. Wild. I mean, if this happens, if they if they like get a bigger majority in the Senate, and uh, and the House is close, that's a epic bag fungal by the Republicans. Well, I mean, yeah. how much? I mean, isn't and like can we blame most of this on the Dobbs decision? Is that is that what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it does look like that's been a huge uh, mobilizer. I hate to say it, Toto. So, ha. Huh. I mean, the thing is, that's why people for many years thought that Republicans would never do it because for precisely this reason, but. That's They've the difference. Done it. But that's the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. Democrats uh, catastrophize losing, catastrophize short-term losses so much that they can't conceive of doing anything for a broader project because that might cause us to lose in the near term. But yeah, large big-time political projects are going to have negative costs as they're accumulating. Uh, and that could mean you lose winnable Senate races because you have two extreme candidates, but it means that your party over time gets more ideologically coherent and is able to push things like abortion uh, bans. And then you have like a, evidence for your supporters that you can actually get things done and that they should bother supporting you. And they do. Well, I mean, yeah, it's the reason that Bernie was never going to be a Goldwater or Reagan in 76 figure. 
Yeah. It, it's always just like, you lost, so you lost. Yes. But I do want to say, what did I say in March? The problem with Republican social issues is if you keep upping the ante, eventually you have to do it. Yeah, you got to do it. Mm. And now they're getting, they're getting, they're going to lose, they're going to uh, not do nearly as well as they could have absent Dobbs. But again, they will have overthrown Roe. They have instituted new sort of normalized regimes of compulsory pregnancy in big parts of the country. Like that's worth it to lose this Pennsylvania and the Wisconsin Senate races. Well, that that are like getting rejected by voters who never rejected them before. I mean, like if they, I'm not saying they're going to keep going on their current path forever. Right. Because you know, they didn't stay on the George W. Bush path forever. They, they, they love reinventing themselves. They love getting a new haircut. They love trying the Elvin look. (laughs) <laughs> and then the side bangs they're getting and, uh <laughs> modded ears yeah to look like elves. yeah i'm not saying they won't do a new thing but like on their current path okay they're going to be the party of all white people who aren't normal forget college graduate <laughs> just non-normal yeah, white non-normal people it's the new people. distinction yeah. and half of latinos yeah that makes you a very regional party that's yeah yeah that's true you can't get national power out of that if all the normal white people are like, this is just too much. Yeah. And, and is normal versus non-normal white people, does that break down essentially like, do you think uh, women should be forced to give birth? And uh, I mean, kind of. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. I mean, if we assume, like, we take normality to be like, has come to some sort of uh, modus vivendi with reality, then yeah. The, the whole point here is that these are the people who are at war with like America as it's presented to them. But of course, only have the insane distorted lens of like Republican grievance to explain it for them. Yeah. Um, well, before we get to Aaron Good, I, I do have, I do want to share with you guys. Uh, this is courtesy of New York magazine. This is headline, all the juicy gossip from Jared Kushner's book. I know you guys are dying for this. This is going to be <laughs> love the Kush. This is going to be scintillating. Uh, Jared Kushner, you know, so I'm just going to write, read here. It says Ivanka Trump married a man who in many ways appears to be the total opposite of her father. Though they are both scions of wealthy real estate families. Donald Trump's life has been full of uh, marital drama and sexual misconduct allegations. Jared Kushner has been married to Ivanka for nearly 13 years and seems like he'd blanch at the locker room talk. Trump is best Mm. known for fumbling a biblical citation and awkwardly using the Bible as a photo prop. Kushner is a devout Orthodox Jew. Trump is a larger-than-life celebrity who thrives on public attention. Kushner is so press-shy that most Americans don't know what his voice sounds like. I mean, that's. I, I, been, you know, I remember when that, he, that sucks for them. Yeah. I'll, that's all I'll say. <laughs> I remember he had that press conference in the during the the Trump presidency when he came out and he talked, and there was a moment where everyone's like, "Damn, dude, that's what he sounds like. That is <laughs> that's not good." Do you know that was the last tweet that Brett Stevens liked before <laughs> really? he left Twitter? It was from Patrick Howley, who is one of the handful of people who was deemed too weird to work at the Daily Caller. <laughs> if you remember him. <laughs> You have to be, you have to be, um, let's say, solidly a millennial to remember him. But um, anyway, he made a he made a post uh, that was Jared Kushner's famous Rose Garden address, where he said, "I did not do anything," yeah. you know, and it was just captioned simply, "Jared Kushner's gay little nerd voice," <laughs> <laughs> and it was the last thing Brett Stevens ever liked before he left. 
when it was reported that Kushner had scored a seven-figure deal to write a memoir of his time as a White House advisor, many assumed it would be a dry affair that mainly talked up his work on the Abraham Accords. Folks, we, we, we love the we Abraham, Abraham Accords. Love the Abraham Accords. It's Changed the, the world. Yeah, the, the Alan Dershowitz, Mike Pompeo, the way they push that shit. Like this is Camp David all over again. It is so hilarious. We're just formalizing these like ties between the Gulf states and Israel that have existed for decades now. Yeah, all these countries that have not been at odds with each other since 1973. Yeah. <laughs> it says, but it turns out Kushner is more similar to his father-in-law father than we realized. No. Breaking, yeah. mm -hmm. Breaking history is like the more respectable Javanka version of Trump's $75 burn book, Our Journey Together. <laughs> Excerpts and early reports... <laughs> <laughs> Excerpts and early reporting show that Kushner does plenty of score settling in the 512-page oh, memoir. Good oh, Lord. God. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank, Jesus God, thank, God for this, thank God for this drama report. Oh, uh, my God. The power broker's got to be more exciting. <laughs> dropping surprising allegations and stirring up new drama with former colleagues in the Trump administration, where he served as senior advisor to the president. Here's a running list of all the hot, breaking history gossip ahead of the book's hot August, goss. August hot release. steaming goss. This, okay. is, this is how you would get Robert Caro to kill himself. <laughs> to write a book like, like why this. would I even bother finishing this now? Yeah, Master of the White House Social Engagement Wing. <laughs> book two. Uh, volume two, the hamburger years. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, first piece of hot goss. Trump warned him that Tom Brady was after Ivanka, in parentheses, but he wasn't. Oh, wow. Okay. That's amazing. It says, Kushner got off on the wrong foot with his future father-in-law. He writes that his first interaction with Trump came in, in 2007 when he was publisher of the New York Observer. According to Forward, Kushner says he received a letter from Trump expressing annoyance about his low placement on the paper's annual power list. Please stop sending me your paper so I don't have to read bullshit like this anymore, <laughs> Trump wrote to Kushner. Two years later, Kushner had started dating Ivanka and their relationship was getting serious. At her urging, he scheduled a lunch with her father and broke the news that Ivanka was converting to Judaism. Well, let me ask you a question, Trump asked Kushner. Why does she have to convert? Why can't you convert? <laughs> Kushner replied that she had made the decision on her own and was comfortable with it. Convert to what? <laughs> Episcopalian? Episcopalianism? Presbyterian method? Presbyterian? Yeah. Uh, he goes, that's great. Trump then remarks, most people think I'm Jewish anyway. Most of my friends are Jewish. I have all these awards from synagogues. They love me in Israel. <laughs> he has all these awards from synagogues. <laughs> most likely to succeed. <laughs> Biggest goy. Uh, he added that he hoped Kushner was serious because Tom Brady, the iconic NFL quarterback, was also courting his daughter. Though Trump has been publicly talking up a potential Tom Brady-Ivanka pairing for years, it appears neither Brady nor Ivanka ever expressed any interest in dating each other. And upon further investigation, Brady was newly married to Giselle Bündchen when Trump issued this warning to Kushner. Okay, like, the, the, the Trump trying to, like, marry off his daughter to Tom Brady. Yeah. Because, like, in his mind, Tom Brady is the, ultimate, the ultimate man. He's the ultimate yes. man, the ultimate American. He's doing his own Bene Gesserit breeding program <laughs> just through press releases where he's like, many are saying, Tom Brady asked my daughter out to dinner. <laughs> he took her to Benny Hanna. Benny Hanna, folks. Can you imagine it if they did it, folks? Can you imagine <laughs> it? I have. I've imagined it a lot. I've drawn it a little bit. You want to see? A lot of people say they say, Trump, I sift people like grains of sand. <laughs> yeah, it's like a Benny Gesserit program to create like the first normal member of the family, <laughs> like the first member of the family who can like talk, talk to somebody and come off as somewhat normal. Yeah. 
No, but yeah, like he, he he's just like because he wants he wants the Tom he wants the Tom Brady brand associated with Trump. Because like, what is Tom Brady? Is the he's the winningest quarterback of all time? Which, if you're in America, means you're the number one winner in world history. So for for him to sire a child with his daughter, which mean that the Trump bloodline would remain winners for the next thousand years. Well, yeah, they, his child would finally be. They would make an issue that wasn't didn't have the let's say trump curse of a, <laughs> the weirdest affect i've ever seen he's the only he's the only one who can overcome the curse just by like sheer force of personality and like pseudofed abuse <laughs> but like the rest of them like you see we remember the eric trump special oh, and like yeah. don jr and like they're all so off like they're they have just the most severe fucking anti-charisma and Jared's exactly the same. And so is everyone else they married. And Tom Brady's the first guy that can like do a video into a cell phone camera and just like kind of be normal. Make eye contact. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, with, 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 with Brady and the family, I'll be kissing my sons on the mouth. <laughs> Eric, smooch up. Right. That's, the, up. That's, up, Don. that's the only weird thing he did. <laughs> uh, next piece of hot goss. Trump spoiled his engagement surprise Aww. on the second meeting when Kushner stuck into the office to secretly tell Trump he was going to propose. Trump intercommed with Ivanka as soon as he left to alert her that an engagement was imminent. <laughs> <laughs> Kushner ended up proposing that night in his apartment, which his brother, Josh, covered in rose petals and candles after taking her to see the musical Wicked. Uh. If, if, my, if I ever asked my brother to do something like that, he would demand I change my last name. God damn it! His, his brother covered his uh, rose petals and candles. Like this is the fantasy of like a, a fifty-plus woman who works at like reception at your office. Yeah, like has billions of dollars ever been wasted on someone like quite like this? Like Jesus fucking Christ! Uh, this this is a great piece of hot goss. I'm glad New York Magazine included this. Uh, the Secret Service actually loved him. Okay. Though you may have heard that Jared and Ivanka would not let the Secret Service agents on their protection detail use the bathroom in their swanky DC home, Kushner says that's untrue. He claims they offered to let the agents use their bathroom, but they declined, saying they wanted a larger space they could use as a command post. I, love it. I need a larger toilet to use as a command post. <laughs> my turrets, this, this command post is, cannot take my turrets. They're too large. <laughs> You know, there's such a thing as too much fiber. <laughs> if you're if you're able to survey and scout while taking a shit, <laughs> the, 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 this is really good. That it says Kushner also says the Secret Service assigned him the code name Mechanic because they thought he was amazing at his job. They had observed me quietly and methodically fixing problems behind the scenes during the presidential campaign. He says. No, oh. they have. What you the really fuck think, are you like, talking about? Cool guys with guns all thought I was actually the, the coolest person in the they White don't House. They don't notice what you're doing. They're like, oh, oh, he's calling the other new. He's calling the National Enquirer guy to <laughs> like delay the story about his dad, his father-in-law chasing a girl around like Beetle Bailey's boss. <laughs> what do you think? Okay, if there was any uh aspect of Jared's personality or, or or character or you know professional conduct that, that earned him the, the the moniker mechanic from the secret service agent do you think it was because he was good at fixing things behind the scenes what do you think is going on here i think it's an ironic joke it's like oh mechanic work with your hands huh <laughs> you know like i think maybe it's just cuz he was really oily <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> uh okay uh, next piece of hot goss a Bannon threatened to break him in half. Kushner says that he had many clashes with fellow Trump, with fellow Trump advisor Steve Bannon and found himself woefully unprepared when Bannon, 
a black belt in the dark arts of media manipulation. <laughs> oh, wow. He's, he's not a black belt in, you know, karate. Yeah. Uh, finally declared war on him. Kushner writes that Bannon threatened him in the White House cabinet room when he told him that he had to stop leaking negative information about Gary Cohn, a senior economic advisor to the press. Kushner writes that Bannon responded, Cohn's the one leaking on me. Jared, right now, you're the one undermining the president's agenda. He continued, his eyes intense and voice escalating into a yell. And if you go against me, I will break you in half. Don't fuck with me. And he got absolutely comprehensively <laughs> washed, rinsed, and owned by Jared fucking Kushner. Yet the mechanic checked his oil. <laughs> Kushner says Bannon threatened him again when he called Maggie Haberman of the New York Times at the urging of the White House chief of staff in an attempt to clean up on a story about Trump's disappointment with his senior staff. How fucking dare you leak on me? If you leak on me, I can leak on you 28 ways from Sunday, Bannon said, according to Kushner. God, this fucking blustery mick. <laughs> just nothing but empty <laughs> threats out <laughs> at his ass in three fucking months. I'm going to fuck you, bro. Oh, my God. This guy's definitely the dark been leaked on lord before. of neo-fascism <laughs> we all have to worry about. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's, t- he's taking a 28-year-old staffer's Vivans and watching Ray Donovan coming up with these fucking <laughs> shitty lines. What a fucking loser. One of the biggest fucking losers of all time. Do you remember when Bannon said, um, I spent several years running companies in Asia? Yeah, right. <laughs> Steven Seagal line. Asia. It was so great because like Trump basically just poked him off of the fucking uh, rubbish heap. And then he's given this insane opportunity. I'm going to do it. I'm going to reshape America, my image. And this fucking Fauntleroy effortlessly turfs him immediately. Maybe he wasn't even trying. Maybe he was yeah. called the mechanic because you know mechanic referencing the classic Charles Bronson movie. Yes, yes. Mechanic is a killer for hire. Yep. Mm. He, he he put Bannon. He, he, he put he put a contract out he, on he him. He put a hit out on him. I heard you uh, leak on fat guys. Two <laughs> <laughs> quick hits. He joked that getting Bannon fired is one of his greatest accomplishments. Then he generously encouraged Trump to pardon Bannon. I mean, this is this is not really gossip. I mean, this is not hot gossip. No, this is just him saying, I, just I'm, him a, like, I'm a very, I'm a cool very guy. good little I'm a boy. I'm a very good guy. I got rid of the bad yelling man, and the Secret Service says that I was cool. Yeah, it's amazing for a man of this height to suck his own cock like this for 500 pages. <laughs> he indirectly ruined Christie's shot at chief of staff. Kushner claims he also responded magnanimously when Trump considered making Chris Christie his chief of staff about halfway through his presidency. Though the former you just got the fact that he was actually considering that is really is oh really my good. God. Uh, though the former New Jersey governor put his father in prison as a federal prosecutor, Trump eventually pardoned Charles Kushner too. When Trump asked Kushner what he thought of bringing his adversary into a top spot in the White House, Kushner recalled telling his father-in-law that he was fine with it. I joke that Christie might be better at Homeland Security. If he can close the George Washington Bridge, maybe he could close the border. A reference to the Bridgegate scandal that, <laughs> scandal that embroiled the former New Jersey governor. But Kushner, suge- Kushner suggests karma came for Christie anyway. He didn't get the job because he was about to release a book in which he trashed the Kushner family and couldn't stop, and he couldn't stop its publication. Ironically, Christie's petty obsession with using my family to get media attention had destroyed his dream opportunity to rehabilitate his image and finish his political career, Kushner writes. Another big fat mick fucking owned by Jared Kushner. I would say that Kushner's dad is one of the most justifiable people that Christie ever put. It's true. Like the one decent thing he did in his life, throw that fucking crook in jail and now he's paying for it. Yeah. Once again, Kushner, he cannot be defeated. If you're a bellowing 
Irish oaf in the in the Cohen brothers model, you will be compromised to a permanent end by Jared Kushner. Oh my God! It's like they didn't deploy him against Brandon. <laughs> oh my God! Not, not fat enough. Oh he's yeah, not fat. Uh, that, it's uh, like they, they they brought him in and he's like, I, I I can't do anything. Jared Kushner, Secret Service code name: Papio Daniel Destroyer. <laughs> it's just like I mean, like Brandon, Irish, empty threats. Yeah, yep. not fat. Doesn't yell either. No, yeah. he doesn't. I think he would die if he yelled. He did. He would, yeah. uh, okay, this, this is a good piece of hot goss. John Kelly shoved Ivanka. Oh, yeah, I saw this one. With internal, Trump, with internal Trump White House drama spinning out of control in the summer of 2017, retired Marine Corps General John Kelly was promoted to chief of staff and tasked with imposing some military discipline on the White House. <laughs> he promptly put an end to the 11-day reign of Anthony Scaramucci, but Kushner alleges, alleges that he became a West Wing bully himself. Kushner says that Kelly had a Jekyll and Hyde demeanor, was constantly duplicitous, and once let his mask fully slip when he shoved Ivanka. Oh. One day, he had just marched out of a contentious meeting in the Oval Office, Kushner writes. Ivanka was walking down the main hallway in the West Wing when she passed him. Unaware of his heated state of mind, she said, Hello, Chief. Kelly shoved her out of the way and stormed by. <laughs> she wasn't hurt and didn't make a big deal out of the altercation, but in his rage, Kelly had shown his true character. In his recounting, Kushner writes that about an hour later, Kelly visited Ivanka's second floor West Wing office to offer what he described as a meek apology, which he accepted. When asked about the incident, Kelly told the Post, I don't recall anything like you described. It is inconceivable that I would ever shove a woman. Inconceivable, never happened, Kelly told the paper in an email. Would never intentionally do something like that. Also, don't remember ever apologizing to her for something that I didn't do. I don't remember that. This one's weird, right? Like, because it's like, I mean, I could see Kushner wholesale lying about this, right? But, okay, I don't remember intentionally shove. I would never intentionally shove a woman. And we did talk about how Kelly, by all rights, should have probably suicide bombed Trump. Yeah, like absolutely. If he, if he had any honor at all. Right. If he believed all the stupid shit he talks about, right? Or if he even cared about his son dying. Yeah. Could this be his you know that feeling breaking through and he's like oh at least i can shoulder check his daughter <laughs> the one kid he likes i mean kelly that's another kind of stout irish guy, another right? irishman fucking yeah. bite not the quite, dust not quite fat though he's not a of, fatty though he's kind of kind of he's, he's a pl- thick. Like, thick he's, he's a, thick yeah. he's a fire plug yeah yeah exactly you know? the classic fire plug the, the classic hockey player yeah. fucking physique. so only like the uh only ca- the endomorphic thin ass like a uh, banshee irish are are uh, invulnerable to the <laughs> Kushner attack. Yeah, I feel like if you bumped into Kelly, it would just feel like one of those two densely packed beanbags. <laughs> John Kelly enveloped Ivanka in a gravity blanket. <laughs> this is his hug. He hugged her in the hallway. It just, what do you? I like this. He just said hello, chief, and then he just checked her into a fucking <laughs> boom. <wall. laughs> do you think? Okay, do you think this in any form happened? I could see, I could see it happening where like it was just he he got out of the White House, uh, the Oval Office, and was just kind of incensed and had tunnel vision, and then she's just like, and also as we talked about, hello, like, this, chief, this, hey guys, and then he guy, just like brushes past her, and then, huge coward. Uh, every day the president shits directly on everything he's ever believed right in, right into and he his just mouth. Takes it. So of course he's gonna like, oh, there's Ivanka, there's his daughter, I'm gonna fucking bump bump into her. Just a perfect little petty kick down mm. bitch ass move. Well, here's another bitch ass move that Kelly did. Kelly secretly listened to Trump's calls. God, did you imagine that? No way. <laughs> no way. Kushner says that Kelly routinely listened in on Trump's phone calls, and the president only found out about it days before the chief of staff's depart the chief of staff's departure on January second, two thousand nineteen. 
According to the New York Post, Kushner says Kelly's successor, Mick Mulvaney, raised the issue during a dinner at Vice President Mike Pence's residence. Before we departed, Mulvaney and I met with the president to discuss his upcoming schedule. Then Mulvaney handed Trump a document to sign. Mulvaney told Trump, this will end the practice Kelly started of listening to all of your phone calls. Mulvaney explained that Kelly had given himself the ability to listen surreptitiously to the president's calls, according to the account. The president was stunned at the invasion of privacy and ordered aides to end that immediately. I mean, obviously, I think like everyone's listening to every phone call in the White House. Of course, but like, I just Especially like the idea once Trump's, again. My God, like John Kelly, he's got like a he's got like a, like a secret black box room yeah. of guys with like they got the cans on, they got the headphones on. There's like you know the tape reels running, and they're just listening to yep. every yep. fucking phone call this yep. moron makes. You know, you know, <laughs> Gina Davis. You know, she says she says she's in Mensa, but I don't buy it. <laughs> I talked to her a few times. Not that bright. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is a good one uh, Trump said he hoped Alice Johnson wouldn't kill anyone after he commuted her sentence <laughs> in an excerpt provided to people Kushner describes how he helped Kim Kardashian with her effort to have Alice Johnson's prison sentence commuted in an Oval Office meeting in May 2018 after working closely with Kim Kardashian to vet the file I presented Alice's case to the president Kushner writes White House counsel Don McGahn offered some pushback accusing Johnson of being a drug kingpin but Trump was open to the idea, so Kushner arranged for the fellow reality TV star to come to the Oval Office. She gracefully presented Alice's case of the president, Kushner says, of Kardashian. She knew the details backward and forward. McGahn went easy in his counterarguments because he was starstruck, Kushner recalls. Two days later, Trump called me early in the morning and said, let's do the pardon. Let's hope Alice doesn't go out and kill anyone. <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> that was like uh it's sort of like the when uh like norman and Ma norman mailer and william buckley had like a murderer off where they yeah. both got two guys out of jail and mailer's guy immediately killed some woman yeah and buckley's guy only attempted to murder yes. someone after getting yes. out yeah uh no jack henry abbott he killed a waiter like yeah. the first like two days after he got out he got in an argument with a waiter and stabbed him to death <laughs> yeah i think mailer's is like more because at least he got into an argument. Yeah. Like, um, the Buckley's guy was just like a psycho yeah. who was just killing it was like, like underage women girls. And shit. Yeah. Yeah. And Buckley had a huge like thing for him too. Very he big loved yeah, he really yeah. <laughs> loved that guy. Rough yeah. trade he was in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is, once again, uh, not really, this is a tepid piece of goss. Uh, Kushner was secretly treated for thyroid cancer and didn't tell Trump. Okay, who cares? Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't yeah, give a what, shit. Whatever, pal. You want us to send you a, a belated get well card? <laughs> Fuck off. I don't even, I, I think that's like, I mean, it's like when people claim they have skin cancer, right? It's very possible, yeah. Uh, it just, I he had got like a scary, cancer. yeah, he got a scary diagnosis and he like, he spent the He's day unfor unfortunately, trying to get sympathy from, from like, uh from melania and she's just like facing him just like, i don't care yeah I, it's like oh wow something's weird with your thyroid who could have guessed <laughs> unfortunately though he had had to have a good chunk of his thyroid removed and oh. he wants everyone to know that it, it, that's why his voice sounds the way it does i'm just kidding, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, and last i mean like this is not a piece of gossip at all it's just rupert murdoch told him that trump's 2020 arizona loss was ironclad thanks thanks for sharing that Jared. Okay. People were really dying to know that. What's the point of that? Just that Jared has media ambitions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just, just basically Murdoch and his former wife, Wendy Dang are so close with Jared and Ivanka that they arranged to reunite the young couple after they split for a few months early in their courtship. Oh, that's, that's sweet. Swingers. Oh, Sounds like fun. swinger stuff. Yeah. Mm. 
Was Tony there? <laughs> he was watching. <laughs> yeah, below deck. <laughs> uh, yes, that's it. That's the uh, r- rather tepid goss. From Lame. Like 500 book. fucking yeah, pages? 500 pages God. of this bullshit. Christ. Good God. Who is reading Jared's book? I would love to get them and find them and put, put them in the cage of some kind because they shouldn't be walking amongst us. Oh, God. It has to be someone who, like, dreams about working in the Heritage Foundation, right? Yeah. Like, there's no one else. Like... Because the base, like they don't. No, they hate Jared. They either hate him or don't know who. He right. Is. It's got to be like, yeah, people who saw Trump as president and were like, wow, they weren't able to, they weren't able to solve the uh, Latino problem without having to uh, undermine themselves with their base. This is a real opportunity. Too bad he's not disciplined enough to make the most of it. Exactly. It's like Marco Rubio supporters who yeah. went over to Trump and are yeah. like, well, he cut taxes. Yeah. That's the exact type of person who's into this. Sickos. Sickos, in other words. Uglier Republican Dan from Veeps. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's get into it with. Uh, okay. Oh, yeah. We got a plug. We got to okay. plug the store and shut the. Oh, have you been up. walking around naked? <laughs> Or wearing a large barrel with suspenders. Yeah. Do you have a splinter on your dick? <laughs> have your rags gotten too tawdry? Yeah. Do people mistake you for a leper? Do you, are you uh, are you one of those uh, abjects from Dark Souls or whatever they're called? <laughs> yeah. Are, are you, you tired of the wagon wheel around your neck? Yeah. Are you are you sick of your if you do have clothes? Okay. <laughs> Um, are you sick of your t-shirts not being objectionable enough? Are you sick of not causing a confrontation with your t-shirt that references a certain controversial government post-World War II program? Friends, are you tired of being mistaken for Vigo Mortensen and Crimes of the Future as you shuffle about in your dark rags? Well, then, Chapo Trap House, I'm pleased to announce this plug, folks. New merchandise is finally available. The number one most thing commonly asked question can now be answered, yes. The Zapata oil hats are now ready to also order again. Zapata hat Zapata hoodies, hoodies. Zapata hat Zapata oil t-shirts. We got a whole trove of new merchandise. We're very excited for. We have Fed a, windbreakers. We have a Fed windbreaker. The federal, the FBI anti ADHD unit. Yes, that's available to all in, in in windbreaker and hoodie form. We've got a Jack Ruby Carousel Club t-shirt and hoodies, and of course, as Felix said, the classic Project Paperclip design. It'll be the star of any, you know, uh, uh, birthdays. Bar mitzvahs. Bar mitzvahs. <laughs> well, like, you really shouldn't wear this in public if you're not Jewish. That's like... But if you are Jewish, you are required to. Yeah. I We were only able to do this because this was my idea. Yeah. Yes. But ChapoTrapHouse.shop is where you go for the hottest new merchandise drops. It's for dads, grads, yep. trads. Uh, everyone loves our hot new merchandise. Get that Zapata oil hat and stop bothering me about it. Yep. And right, once again, before I get into it with Aaron Good to talk about deep politics and the para-state of the intelligence and national security community and the organized crime that they represent, I would like to remind you one more time that tickets are still available for our fall tour. Come and see us this October in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and Fort Lauderdale, Miami. Tickets available at chapotraphouse.com slash live. Boom. Without further ado, Aaron Good here to talk about his book, American Exception. <laughs> All right. Uh, joining us now is uh, Aaron Good, uh, making his second appearance in the Chapo Trap House program, collecting his uh, two-time guest uh, challenge coin. But Aaron, we're here today to talk about your book, American Exception. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Will. It's great to be here. Uh, Aaron, uh, essentially, the, uh, the the question your book uh, seeks to address or answer is uh, why U.S. foreign policy 
displays such continuity across administrations and just how American democracy and the rule of law has um, declined inversely with the rise of the U.S. empire. Um, and sort of seeking to answer that question, you introduced the concept of what you call a tripartite state. Could you define what that means and what three parts uh, of the state you're referring to? Well, the idea of the, the reasons for looking at the continuity of government were uh, the continuity of policy, let's say, across administrations really was hammered home to me after Obama was elected with a slogan of change you can believe in. And I worked on his campaign staff and I thought that, you know, even if he wasn't going to bring about some radical revolutionary change, that there would be some change. I wouldn't have guessed it would have been continuity, continuity you can believe in. That was the case. And uh, this really was a bit shocking to me because about the time I graduate college is the Bush years. The Bush years are, you know, right about at this time. And so it was eight years of really criminal leadership. So it's not just the continuity of, of policy, but the fact that the U.S. Uh, government commits cr- things that are crimes all the time as a matter of course. Like the, the Iraq war was a clear violation of the U.N. charter, it's blatantly illegal as was the torture and the massive surveillance and even the way that Bush got into office in Florida. And so the expectation was, or the hope was that a new administration would uh, apply the rule of law and that that alone would lead to some changes in American politics. When that didn't happen, it made me go back and look at all of these things. And I eventually start to read more radical scholars who look at issues like the Kennedy assassination and the U.S. involvement in drug, the drug trade and U.S. connections, the connections between the security state and organized crime. And it leads me to uh, other authors who look at the state as not being this democratic, liberal state, but as operating in more of a top-down fashion and in a more of a lawless fashion. And so it made me look at a, liter- a, a small but very punchy literature of people who looked at what they would call the dual state which was the security state and the uh, public state, more or less. And with that, I've made a bit of a um, modification to that or an alteration to that, which was to say that it was really more of a tripartite kind of concept uh, that we want to think of with the regime that we live under. You have the security state, you have the FBI, and you have this, the CIA and the Pentagon and so on. And you have the democratic state of publicly public officials who are elected, right? But so many decisive moments seem to be uh, to work out in favor of something deeper, something uh, that represents a sort of top-down power in society, uh, and that it is even more secretive than just the security state. And it's this concept of like deep political power, power that is usually repressed, uh, things that are related to politics that are repressed rather than acknowledged in public discussions. And this borrows from Peter Dell Scott, who I'd say is probably my biggest influence. And he's been working on this stuff since the early 1970s. And uh, this is just a way to try to understand the way that the U.S. functions as a dictatorship, as an imperialist power, and as kind of a dictatorship top down uh, with a democratic facade. And so I found this tripartite state structure, this theoretical construct to be a way to put this into social science terms so that we're not just having these sort of sterile, sanitized conversations about uh, history 
and a history that's often a kind of counterfeit history uh, of major events, especially since the end of World War II. So this is this is what I was trying to do, and that that was the inspiration for it. Um, like, yeah, when you when you when you present an argument that essentially that there is this continuity of governance in America that that remains in power and pursues its own goals, regardless of who is elected at any level. Uh, I think people rebel at that and they'll, they'll point to certain things like, oh, well, you know, George W. Bush, he started the war in Iraq and Obama like ended the war in Iraq. So, like, how can you say there's no difference? But I think that's an important point you made originally. The fact that. George W. Bush and Dick Cheney were not prosecuted for starting the war in Iraq should tell you that, like, who's really in charge, right? Because it's just like, if everyone understands that the war in Iraq, as is now, like, you can admit on CNN or the New York Times that the war in Iraq was a mistake, right? I mean, that's about as far as they'll go. But, you know, the implications of that are never followed up on. Like, the people who made that mistake are never <laughs> held responsible. Whereas, if you know, if you were driving a tractor trailer, like, cranked out of your mind on speed and caused the 10-car pileup that killed 15 people, you would go to jail. Even though yeah, it was a mistake, I was just doing my job. Uh, you're still criminally responsible for that. Whereas, the, the you know, like the, the the criminality of like the crimes committed in service of this, you know, whatever you want to call it, deep state or just you know, like the the, the power politics, the national security state. People who do crimes in service of that are never held to account. Um, and you know, so like the continuity is not so much in the changing of leaders, but it's in the like uh, just basically blanket protection for the people who carry out this agenda. And this is something that overrides what should be the incentives of a two-party democracy. At least you would think that one party, if one party commits blatant crimes, then like commonsensically, it would be to the other party's advantage to prosecute and adjudicate these crimes because then they could say, hey, we're not criminals and the other side is, right? I mean, this is pretty obvious and yet it never happens. And so uh, this needs to be needs to be examined as to why this is the case. And it's to to clarify here, we're not talking about just international law with the uh, you know the UN Charter and other laws that are considered to be part of that whole superstructure super of international law, which has no you know ruling authority to really control it very well. But it's like you know understood what international law is and that the U.S. violates it. That's kind of commonly understood. But the important thing to keep in mind with the Iraq War and other acts of the, of the U.S. empire is that these violate the supremacy clause of the Constitution because the, uh, we've ratified the U.N. Treaty. The U.N. Treaty has been signed by the U.S., ratified by the U.S., and it outlaws international aggression. As, and um, so these are not viol they're violating domestic laws routinely when they overthrow governments, when they wage dirty wars, when they wage overt invasions like the Iraq war. These are actual crimes according to the U.S. Constitution, uh, and they don't get prosecuted. And so this, this has to be taken into account or at least acknowledged. Why do the, are these people above the law and what, what, can, we, uh, what can we extrapolate from that? Um, in, in thinking about like this, this tripartite state, like the, the public state, which represents our sort of like front facing uh, democratic institutions, the security state, and then like the deep state. Like, is it that like one has supremacy over the others, like it's a hierarchy, or does it function more like co-equal branches serving the same agenda? Like, does is it is it, is it is it is it so much the issue of like one branch of this of being having supreme control over the others, or is it like that they all balance and sort of equalize each other's interests and working in concert? Well, the way I describe it in the book and in an article that I got published in uh, Academic Journal back in 2015 
is that it's best conceived of as like a Venn diagram. And so this, the deep political power, which you could call it the deep political system, that's what Peter Dell Scott called it before, you know, in earlier parts of American history, where you would have governance and enforcement carried out through uh, legitimate and then illegitimate means through um, legal and illegal extra constitutional ways. You know, you had these, you had power that was like not so much acknowledged and could be effectual, but it wasn't, it was something that coexisted with the democratic state. I believe that after World War II, when the decision was made that the U.S. was going to go for a global empire after World War II, and this was a decision reached by uh, economic elites who were somehow charged with planning America's entry into World War II. Uh, the Council on Foreign Relations paid for all of this, or the Rockefeller Foundation and the Council on Foreign Relations carried it out, but the Council on Foreign Relations is like Rockefeller money. They did this war and peace studies project to uh, plan U.S. entry into World War II. And the vice president of the time uh, of the CFR was Alan Dulles. And in some ways, he's kind of like the, uh, the, the real face of the U.S. empire and, and the way that it was constructed. And he was a corporate lawyer, but also uh, a spook, you know, an oil intelligence guy, a corporate lawyer, and uh, later the ultimate intelligence officer in the United States. And during this time period, in order to pursue this global empire, they create institutions like the IMF to help manage capitalism in the World Bank and the UN to help to uh, resolve international disputes. But there's also the CIA is created. And that is something that allows the U.S. to operate in an imperial top-down fashion while still pretending to be a democracy so that you have problems that you can't work out diplomatically, like Iran 1953 and the issue of Iranian oil being nationalized, then you can send in the spooks to overthrow the government and put in a puppet, you know, to really bolster U.S. hegemony. So this, and there were people at the time who thought that the better way to handle the, uh, some of these issues, these early CIA issues, like the election in Italy, for example, was to have private people handling this sort of business, that it shouldn't be done in the government. But other people like Alan Dulles won out and it becomes the purview of the CIA to carry out these sorts of operations. And I think that the effect of this gradual over time is to transform the state uh, such that it's more it's appropriate to talk about a deep state rather than just a deep political system or a political system that's occasionally corrupted by outside forces, that these forces get enshrined within the state, become a part of how we're governed and have enormous power to determine outcomes and then to lie about it and such that we ha there are big parts of our history that we don't even really have a very clear picture on. And so this is where I see it transforming the state. And so I think that the, the tripartite state model and the idea of a deep state is, uh, is something that evolves over time, but you see, it's, you see the way that it unfolds that's what I try to lay out in the book, especially uh, get it starting with, I think, chapter six, you get into the history and the between the end of World War Two and Ronald and, and Mark with the beginning of Ronald Reagan you know, with his election. I think his election represents really the kind of uh, a culminating event for the deep state to really be firmly in the driver's seat and pretty much free of restraints that a democratic 
system might impose on these kinds of activities. Now, obviously, the uh, the term deep state has become very much in vogue in uh, recent politics and you know our current discourse, and it's a, it's a much abused term, and it's become kind of shorthand for uh, being a crank. You know, like uh, so, like you must encounter this, like with people skeptical of the idea of a deep state, or they just hear like you know uh, Donald Trump or like Donald Trump and his supporters when when any kind of like analysis or discussion of the deep state as a meaningful factor in American life and world affairs. I mean, like, what would be like the easiest example? What would be the easiest way to describe it in a way that, like, uh, you know, like as a pushback against this idea that is solely the province of cranks? But this is a you know a very a very serious like force in history. Right. Well, a lot of people, even if you are vaguely liberal-ish, they recognize that elections don't really change the overarching U.S. foreign policy grand strategy. And so that's something that really has to be explained. It's too bad that, and there's additionally so many examples of lawlessness uh, of the U.S. over time. I mean, domestically and internationally, COINTELPRO, chaos, uh, the the Contra crack scandal. Uh, I mean, you can go on and on here. Like these, there's all these Black Lives Matter people that have died in weird ways. It's like the death of Michael Hastings. There's a lot of events that there's the Epstein thing. There's a lot of events that cannot really be satisfactorily explained with a generic pluralist model of U.S. politics like you would hear in, in political science. So more people will talk about the deep state these days or so they'll say something else to that effect. Uh, Trump has sort of bastardized the term. And uh, I, I could be. You know, Peter Dale Scott, he was the first U.S. scholar to use the term very much. And he has talked about how regrettable it is that Trump has done this. And I think that in a way it's regrettable. On the other hand, we're so uh, dominated in a top-down fashion by the regime that we live under and so fragmented, even the people that are radically against things are can't really form any kind of consensus or, or political block that's coherent. Uh, that I, I don't know that it um, I don't know that it matters that it that it's beca- that we can't do much with this term or actually get people to recognize it because I, I think that it's international things that affect the the evolution of our politics or that are going to shape the way history unfolds at this point because the U.S. public has been so uh, neutered as a as a political force on purpose uh, such that on the one hand yeah it does suck that people that that Trump has come along and almost functioned as an as an op to make to like discredit this notion of top-down governance uh, that is encapsulated in the term the deep state. But on the other hand, I mean, if we're a country that could elect somebody like Trump as president and then, you know, Biden as president, we've got big problems already. And so these are, it's all sort of part of the spectacle that we are watching. I mean, do you think people like, you know, it's like the, the thing with conspiracy theories, it's like, you think people are more comforted by the idea that like any president, even like when they regard as evil, like Donald Trump does have significant, has his hand on the till, you know, his hand on the wheel of the state and that he is shaping the direction of foreign policy and that he gets to make decisions, you know, yes or no on big issues regarding war and peace or poverty and prosperity. Like it's more reassuring to think that than to imagine that essentially Trump, like Obama and Biden and George W. Bush, like they can... I don't know, maybe steer the ship of state five degrees in one direction or another. But for the most part, like big decisions are not really in their purview of the things that they can like as commander in chief that they can say yes or no to. Well, I think Bill Kristol even wrote on Twitter something to the effect of like, hey, I'd prefer the deep state over Trump, you know, any day. 
And uh, I thought that that was strange. Um, I, I think it's hard to say what to make about the way people uh, feel about these issues. People are so, un- I think Americans are extremely unaware of the political economy of America as a global empire. And so we don't, because our institutions do not explain these things to us. And so we really do not get the significance of many events that go on because you can spend a whole lot of time studying these things and find them, you know, being, and be more confused in some respect than when you started because it's, you know, it's, it's complex history and there's a lot of uh, big issues that are kind of not even accessible in terms of like the actual decision-making processes. But uh, this, so for, why do people want to think that uh, these leaders are in charge? I mean, they're told that all the time. So that's, it's, it's perhaps more comforting to believe in democracy and you're getting that reinforced all the time by the news. The, way, the horse race coverage, for example, implicitly is kind of an assertion that it matters somehow who wins. And then the, there's the other issue of like conspiratorial explanations for it. And I don't really, I never wanted to be like the conspiracy guy or whatever, I, I think that the empirical evidence is such that covert clandestine, you know, politics is part of the way that we are governed. And so it needs to be taken into account. And it has some serious implications that we, that the state ha- can avail itself of extra constitutional violence in order to uh, ma- get the political outcomes that it wants. And so this is, if that's the case, then it needs to be taken into account because in that kind of a system, it doesn't make too much sense to be obsessed with elections and public pronouncements of people uh, when you're not really living in a, in a in a democracy where the rule of law prevails, where the if the state can just uh, intervene in these ways. I mean, some of these things that have, have happened are have really serious ramifications and we don't really hash them out. I mean, for example, the Frank Olson murder in 1953, that guy was Wormwood. The documentary on that just came out on Netflix a few years ago, you know, 60 years after the fact. And it's, it's, it took that long to, for it to become kind of understood that it was related to biological warfare that he was going to expose that the U S was using biological warfare in Korea and so they dose him with acid and they eventually end up apparently tossing him out of a window. And the guy that comes to settle the dust there with the like authorities, you know, the local police and the guy running the hotel, the person that was sent on behalf of the CIA was James McCord, uh, the guy, the Watergate burglar uh, and the guy who also was involved in domestic operations to discredit the Fair Play for uh, Cuba committee uh, back in the 60s under the Kennedy administration. So you I mean, yeah, Aaron, when you look into this, like, yeah, like, like, like the, uh, the rhyming, it's just like you described the tripartite state as kind of a Venn diagram, but like, you know, like reading your work and stuff like with McCord or like these individuals, these individuals have a lot of overlapping <laughs> sections of this, of the circles that they are, that they operate in. It just, they keep coming up over and over again. Right. Some of these guys are amazing. And it's not to say that like, aha, I know who's running it. It's James McCord. He was just more of a of a you know a cog in this whole thing. But the fact that there is this class of people that 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 are out there doing these things, it, uh, it points to a you know a secretive arrangement within uh, our our system of governance. And so, given that the the idea of re- of reflexively dismissing people who talk about state criminality as like conspiracy theorists is kind of, uh, you know, nefarious, but I mean, I think that's by design. It's like, it's a way to sort of discredit this way of 
pointing out the criminality of the state. It's a it's it's a powerful kind of propaganda tool to help to shore up the regime. But it's everybody is a conspiracy theorist now. If I mean that was Jack Jack Bradish, professor at Rutgers. He said that. And when you think about it, like with Russia Gate and the global communist conspiracy and the global war on terror, you know, the conspiracy of Al Qaeda all the time. I mean, in reality, like most of what a, lo- a lot of U.S. foreign policy and now even partisan politics is based on dueling conspiracy theories. Uh, you mentioned uh, Peter Dale Scott before, but uh, also I'd say like him and uh, C. Wright Mills are the, the the two the two authors whose like work that you really uh, build off of and like you know engage with. So I was just wondering if you could give. You know, for our listeners, what like with C. Wright Reels and Peter Dale Scott, like how would you describe um, like the work that you're engaging with, and like how are you expanding and building on uh, what, what these two thinkers have like previously laid out? Well, Peter Dale, Peter, I'll start with C. Wright Mills because he's chronologically the earlier one. Um, he wrote The Power Elite in 1956, and he was inspired to write this after reading a book by a German named Franz Newman, who came to the United States, uh, who left Nazi Germany. Uh, and wrote about wrote this book called uh, Behemoth, which was about the rise of national socialism and how this advanced capitalist industrialized country uh, turned into the Nazi state. And so Behemoth is kind of a callback to or, a, or an allusion to uh, Leviathan, right? The sovereign as described by Thomas Hobbes. And C. Wright Mills read that and he thought that that it, it troubled him and he wanted to understand how, you know, advanced uh, capitalist democracies could move towards kind of a authoritarian or totalitarian or anti-democratic forms. And so he wrote the power elite where he argues that uh, we democracy is a facade and that really there's a, a class of elites at the top of the organizational hierarchies in the military, the political system and big business that are more or less interchangeable or increasingly interchangeable and that they have a coincidence of interest in this privately incorporated permanent war economy, which had only really emerged in the last decade as Mills was writing this, and that uh, decision-making was migrating to ever loftier and more secretive circles. People are aware of this on some level. They know that big decisions are being made and that they aren't making any, but uh, they don't quite know what is going on. They just, they, and they also have, a, there's a sense in society that there's a lot of rackets in society and that people are just making a lot of money by single-mindedly pursuing money and that the people at the top are like somehow quite different from the rest of us. So he was trying to hash all this out and did so really brilliantly considering that he didn't have as much information at the time about it. I mean, he makes these allusions to to facts that really get fleshed out later. He says things like the elite are especially adept at co-opting institutions that already exist, but when they need to, they will create all sorts of new institutions in order to get done what they want done. The CIA is something that fits that mode. It was created on the, at the behest of Wall Street people, and it serves their interests uh, extremely well. And he, so he, he knew very, he, he was really on point with many of these things, and he was really vindicated by subsequent events, I think. I, I see Peter Dale Scott as working in that mode as well, he started to study things like the drug traffic in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War era, the beginning of the Vietnam War era, uh, the Kennedy assassination. He actually wrote an essay in the Pentagon Papers about how, uh, based on what he was able to glean from the Pentagon Papers, that Kennedy must have had some sort of withdrawal plan that was reversed shortly thereafter. And he didn't even have all the documents, but he was able to glean this from 
what was in the Pentagon Papers. And this later gets uh, confirmed by with with um, declassifications like decades later. But Peter was really on point about this. And uh, it's funny because Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky were telling Peter, you, you shouldn't put this in, in the in our Gravel edition Pentagon Papers because uh, you're, you're suggesting that it matters who gets elected as president. And that's bad politics. And Peter said, well, you know, this is what the this is what I this is my interpretation of the document. So, I mean, maybe it, there is some difference between these people. And Howard Zinn didn't want it to be published. Noam Chomsky, to his credit, said, OK, you can publish this. Uh, we, we I believe it should see the light of day because, you know, free speech, et cetera, and so on. So he was working in these veins. and He called this stuff parallel or sorry, parapolitics, which is politics where accountability is is consciously diminished. So this refers to covert operations where, for example, or the relationship between, you know, the mob and uh, if you have the mob do certain operations, so it's deniable, like all of these covert clandestine arts, these are called parapolitics. And he eventually evolves into what he calls deep politics, which, as I said, is all of those things in politics that are usually repressed rather than acknowledged in public discourse. And so his, his work, uh, The American Deep State, was written and he put that out in 2015. He put out uh, The Road to 9-11 in 2007, which is a really fantastic uh, book. It's probably the one I would recommend to people who haven't read Peter's work before. And uh, we're still, I'm still doing stuff with Peter. We have a couple of anthologies of his writing that hasn't been published in one book before. And then one maybe classic Peter Del Scott reader that we're hoping to get out as well. And we just published on AmericanException.com uh, an essay that the CIA stole from him in 1970 on the drug trade, on uh, the Golden Triangle heroin trade and the relationship between the CIA, the KMT, and American Wall Street elites, basically. The CIA took it and they never, it never got to Ramparts. They were intercepting Ramparts. What, they just during, like, they just like nicked it out of his mailbox or whatever. I think on the way to Ramparts, yeah. I would guess. Oh, However, okay. they so were getting it. So it just got lost in the mail. Right. He never heard from the beginning because this is before email. He, he just yeah. sort of figured that they got it. Maybe they didn't want to publish it or whatever. So it didn't get published. And uh, it, it's, but, but they posted it. For, for whatever reason, maybe JFK Records Act made them declassify, but it was actually posted on the CIA website and I downloaded a copy. They subsequently took it down, but I got this and I, I showed it to Peter. I'm like, Peter, you're, this essay is here on online and you wrote this. He was like, I did write that. And, you know, what happened to this essay? And so we did, we reworked that and uh, he studied this same subject for decades. So he actually knows a lot more about it. And it was a 2010 book that really expanded on this per, these particular aspects, the, the, the World Commerce Corporation setting up the heroin connection even before the CIA did, you know, with the help of Rockefeller and uh, William Donovan of the OSS and so on. So it's like he was working on these things for decades. And, and it's, it's just an amazing kind of arc uh, of his life to be uh, working in these territories for so long and... Uh, not that many people did. He was a tenured English professor. And so he had the, he used his tenure, which most academics sadly really don't in a good way uh, to write about these issues, even as he was also working in poetry and other, and other things. And uh, he's just an amazing character. He's uh, uh, recovering from COVID and we're hoping he's going to make a full recovery soon because we're getting ready to do some Watergate stuff with him and Jim Hogan. Uh, very, very soon we had to postpone it, uh, but his, he's just been a huge inspiration and a, and a great friend and mentor. Um, well, I mean, one thing that's unmistakable, you know, reading your work or Peter Dale Scott is that the, the conception of the Central Intelligence Agency and really the entire 
intelligence state as basically a form of organized crime. I mean, I, I've said before, like, if you want to understand the CIA, it's kind of like they're the wasp mafia. And like that extends, you know, not just assassinations and narco trafficking and control of black markets or the many criminal allies that they use as their cat's paw to carry out these kind of, you know, covert operations around the world. But I'm saying like functionally as a matter of charter, they exist to break the law and break the law every day on a scale that is astonishing. I have a quote here from your book. In 1996, a House Intelligence Committee report stated that CIA officials had revealed that the agency's operation arm uh, is the only part of the intelligence community, indeed of the government, where hundreds of employees on a daily basis are directed to break extremely serious laws in countries around the world. A conservative estimate is that several hundred times every day, directorate of operations officers engage in highly illegal activities. So, like, right. I mean, like, yeah. So, you just talk a bit about like this, the, just sort of like the function of the CIA as basically a the, the a criminal organization on behalf of you know Wall Street empire. Like, how, like how like how is this structured? Can, can it be understood as a kind of a mafia family? I mean, I think the organized crime thing is a is a pretty easy analogy. It's not a it's not perfect in a way, but organized crime itself really deserves some more interrogation. Uh, uh, organized crime, could another way to describe it most of the time is, is tolerated crime. I mean, there before, if you've ever seen Boardwalk Empire, I think that that of course, yeah. show is really the deep political system. I think that he may have read his Peter Dell Scott, actually, because it really, the guy is like, he's intertwined between the, the economic elite the, the the political system and the underworld of organized crime. And that's sort of how it existed in many ways before the creation of the CIA. And the CIA precursor, the OSS, uh, they got, they sprang Meyer Lansky, or no, at Meyer Lansky's request, they sprang uh, Lucky Luciano from jail. Yeah. Operation and Underworld. He come back and run uh, the New York ports. I mean, like under the under the auspices of this idea that like, oh, we don't want German U-boats docking in 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 Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Navy Yard or whatever. But I was like, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. It was really about keeping uh, labor unrest uh, under wraps uh, while the war was going on, and like basically exclusively exclusively meant communist aligned unions in the uh, in the you know in the stevedores and um, longshoremen. Yeah, the longshoremen are kind of the some of the more badass union people. They're like kind of the more typically just straight up communist, and they they're because of their position in the in, in the commercial systems, they have some power. And so they, they can afford to like, you know, make some demands and, and extract some concessions from capital. So that's what, that was the way they were brought in during world war two. But what, what, and this is, Peter has written about this in American war machine. And this is, I think really notable before the CIA is even really authorizing anything or, or, or doing business in covert operations. You have XOSS guys, so intelligence guys, and I, I, like William Donovan, like I, ju I just mentioned, and Walter Stevenson, aka Intrepid, right? Uh, and we're in this World Commerce Corporation with financing from Rockefeller and John McCloy and other people setting up the heroin traffic with the KMT in the Golden Triangle area um, before the CIA really authorizes this uh, and, and is probably dating back even before the CIA is created, but when you see this, you see that it's done by the overworld of corporate of corporate wealth. And so they're brought in, you know, in a way to I mean, they're working hand in glove with the organized crime rings that are responsible for bringing all the drugs into the United States. And while they're doing this, the U.S. authorities are blaming communist China later. They're saying like, oh, they're. Mao is, is flooding us with heroin. It was Chinese people, but it was the it was Taiwan. It was the KMT, the Kuomintang. 
It was our guys with help from the CIA. And so this uh, this relationship between organized crime and uh, the CIA, the CIA takes it to another level. They, they use these guys to try to kill Castro. Uh, probably some of these people and arrangements were involved in the Kennedy assassination. I mean, Jack Ruby is the obvious case, like, you know, concerned sex club owner who shoots Oswald. <laughs> I mean, these it's so over the top and uh, in many ways that it, it's this is. They, they they not only function as organized crime because they are organized and they commit crimes, they work with organized crime a lot. And in their earlier forms, similarly, before there was a CIA, these these entities worked with organized crime. But the thing about the way they were created was it's very vague. They're, they're empowered by the National Security Act, but they weren't empowered really to it, – it's what was actually – done with the authorization that they were given does not conform to what is in the document. It says that the CIA will also, from time to time, carry out some other duties as designed by the National Security Council pertaining to national security. Well, I mean, it's sort of like a, a chorus that's repeated in this song over and over again is like the, 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 the U.S. empire getting involved in wars, either directly or by proxy in parts of the world that they consider strategically important. And like, you know, beginning with, like you said, the golden triangle heroin trade in Vietnam. Well, what was the big, one of the big blowbacks from Vietnam was a huge explosion of heroin addiction, both in returning troops and in American cities. Well, like, where was that heroin coming from? You jump ahead to the 80s, like the dirty wars in Central America. How do you fund all of these secret operations? Well, all just so happens at the exact same time, there's a huge explosion of cocaine and crack addiction in American cities. And then like back to Afghanistan, now there's an opiate crisis in America because like, well, Afghanistan, that's like, where was all these, where were all these poppies getting grown? I mean, again, who is controlling these black markets? And then like, you know, like I said, the chorus of the song is the same every time it gets repeated throughout. Yeah. Joe Rogan. It, it was funny. I, I, I don't watch a whole lot of Rogan unless he's got somebody on there that I, I'm interested in hearing just uh, because I'm, I'm steeped in these areas. So it's like, I, I, he's not my go-to source or whatever, but he said at one point in one of the things I saw, he said, yeah, I mean, this drug money that's out there. Do you think that do you think that like these bankers are just going to leave that on the table because it's like immoral? Of course, that goes into the, the system. He says something to that effect. And I think that that's exactly right. It's there's three commodities internationally that are the most lucrative in terms of trade. That is uh, the top is oil and then weapons and then drugs. And when you think about that, well, like, yeah, oh, they're just going to like the one, one, one side of that triangle. They're just going to be like, oh, we're not going to touch that. Yeah, that's drugs. That's illegal. Unlike, for instance, arms sales or petroleum and where you get it out of the ground. Yeah. I mean, and, but they're intertwined sometimes because like if you think about Afghanistan, pipeline routes were a part of that calculation. Mm-hmm. And then weapons, you know, it's an expensive boondoggle to occupy that country for decades. And you have uh, the drugs, of course, as well, a, a big part of that. And where does that money end up? Because the, the dollar is the international currency, uh, and it has been for so long, the drug trade and organized crime itself cannot but strengthen the U.S. financial system because it, it moves huge funds around in the financial system and creates you know, massive pools of capital to the point that that was probably drug money that uh, saved the economy uh, to the extent that it's it was kept saved. It from completely collapsing in 2008, <laughs> right? It was just the huge amounts of U.S. currency that's held, you know, in black markets overseas. Man, it's old faithful. I mean, it's old yeah. faithful money geyser for the deep state, more or less, or deep political system, um, capitalism. 
I guess, okay, like uh, uh, to move on uh, slightly, I want to talk briefly about um, this dichotomy that you, uh, you, you uh, attribute to Peter Dell Scott, but uh, the Prussian trader dichotomy when it comes to like foreign policy elites in uh, American government and like intellectual discourse, breaking down like between sort of the neoconservative and neoliberal. Both of these groups are incredibly hawkish and regard America as an empire, and that, like they think that that's just and the way it should be. But like, how like how how do you how do you like how do you define the distinction between the the Prussians, aka like sort of what we reg- generally regard as hawks, and the uh, traitors, which are the neoliberals, which are I guess m- more commonly perceived of as doves. But the point is, this is just one hawk. This is just one bird of prey. Right. I think that this is especially salient in the period from the 50s to the set to the 70s. And the, and the, the conflicts between some of these camps, you're, we can call them neoliberals and neoconservatives uh, or Prussians traders. That's another old, that's an older one. But there's today there's much more overlap than there was than there is, uh, you know, difference. And in the the, the Prussians as a group or the neoconservatives really arise out of the decision that I think is a, a result of the, the capitalist elites to create the military industrial complex, to, to deal with all the problems of integrating the post-war economy in the capitalist world. They come up with the idea of the privately incorporated war economy and the permanent war economy and the military industrial complex as a kind of engine to keep the dollars flowing in the right way and help the East Asia, like Japan, you know, the Korean War is a huge boost for Japan. Uh, and for South Korea and for Taiwan, and uh, to have Western Europe not trading with Russia. And that's where we see this same business today and the way that this was laid out. But a consequence of these people like Dean Acheson, you know, who's really a kind of a, a Rockefeller type of person, who's really like someone who's thinking in terms of global capitalism and how to manage it, is they create this military industrial complex that itself becomes a, a, an important factor in American power politics. Now, there was for a time an actual progressive strain in U.S. politics that I think Henry Wallace represented, the New Deal represented, and these forces get kind of taken out uh, systematically and to the point that like Nixon's really the last liberal trying to operate in a liberal way until Watergate removes him. And then there's some chaos. But I think that Watergate gets resolved in such a way as the neoconservatives, but also financial elites are kind of placated in different ways. And they they come to their the, the things that they were worried about with the end of the Vietnam War. The military is kind of paranoid about Nixon going to China and the Vietnam War ending and military budgets perhaps going down. And the and the uh, sort of commercially minded people, the traders or neoliberals like Rockefeller, they're a little worried about Nixon and his uh, protectionism, which could damage the global economy that they've set up. And his price controls and other methods and his, his even his friendliness to labor, like all of these things, uh, all the different sides of this are going going at uh, Nixon and Nixon is is removed. And, it, and, and do you think it's a coincidence that Nixon was the last American president in a time of inflation and rising gas prices to even consider the idea of price controls? Yeah, I mean, he put them in. Right. I mean, yeah. This, and that's not even really discussed now. And this was it, it's I think that. There are some ele- of the elements of this time period of the '70s that are that we we might remember or be aware of, but that have greater significance. And I think one of them is the Gerald Ford, the 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 was a New York Post uh, headline that said Ford to New York City drop dead, drop right? dead, 
And it was a reference to the bondholders that were like essentially going to assuming a new role in New York City to like dictate the fiscal solvency of the city. And this is a sort of neoliberal, this is almost like a IMF kind of situation, but for an American city. And so I think that this represented a change in, in, in the U.S. Uh, to a, a, a kind of neoliberalism. But, but in addition, the neoconservative forces, beginning really under Carter, although Reagan's credited for it, credited for it, um, a huge military buildup. And this is uh, this in this way, the consolidating the dollar regime worked out the, the conflicts between the neoliberals and the neoconservatives. But in doing so, you jettison whatever progressive elements there were in the American power structure. There's, there's never another Democrat who's even as progressive as Lyndon Johnson. For example, or or is Nixon like Nixon is? Well, I mean, like Chomsky says, Nixon was the last liberal. I mean, like, and this goes back to this idea of continuity and this idea that, like, you know, like, yes, two parties compete for the position of manager of the empire, but essentially they are competing within an artificially constrained like, you know, paddock of acceptable policy. And, you know, whether it's why the fact that, like, you know, the Pentagon budget goes up every single year. And then, like it is like what, how, since the end of the Cold War, like how much has the Pentagon budget like grown exponentially since the Soviet Union collapsed? Like it's only reason for existing. That money is never, ever going to be spent in America on things that are like, you know, broadly popular and like would be democratically successful policies like i.e. you know some sort of universal health care program or in a some like, you know, smaller ball, just things like price controls for dealing with inflation on things like gas. These things, no matter who party, no matter what party, no matter how progressive the person is or conservative they ran as, these things are just never, ever considered, nor will, nor will they be because of this, this, this deep political system that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, Bill Clinton took office and he's a corruptible guy. I think that they knew they probably had that he wasn't going to be out there and out of control, but he, he took <laughs> he office. He had corruptible tattooed on his forehead. You know, like, it's, it's about, yeah, he, I mean, he liked, he likes women who knows what sort of sexual blackmail stuff they had on him, whatever. But at any rate, when he was elected, he uh, reportedly wanted to do some more New Deal type things and kind of deal with some of the excesses of the Reagan Bush years. And early on, I guess probably shortly after he was inaugurated, Robert Rubin and Alan Greenspan take him on a little on a little walk around the White House to give him the talk. And uh, they explain <laughs> to him, like, no, you're not going to do that, Mr. President. And uh, so Bill Clinton, he's quoted in like, a, this is a mainstream magazine, maybe the New York Review of Books is where this was quoted. But he says, you mean to tell me that I owe my reelection chances to the Federal Reserve and a bunch of fucking bond traders? Okay. <laughs> and, and the answer was, yes, that's right. You can't do that. So it, I, I think now it's so structural that it's not like you think, oh, I'm going to necessarily get assassinated. It's like that the, the levers of power are so firmly in, in the hands of these people that they're going to determine whether I succeed or fall. Reagan was their man from the beginning. But when you look at Reagan versus Carter, I mean, two things that were very, that were totally top down that helped Reagan's economy enormously, the control of oil prices, which are controlled by client states and the oil companies and the interest rates, which is the federal reserve, the independent federal reserve, which is independent when in the U S politics is always code for, you know, establishment or even deep state. If you want to, put a fine finer point on it. And so these are these are the ways that power operates in the US and if it's not that the president or congress couldn't do it it's that for they things to address this it's that they don't have the they they know that that is a way of pain I think on some level I mean they just know not I mean Obama said that himself to a uh, 
a group of fundraisers, supposedly. They asked him why he didn't keep more of his progressive promises. And this is a, a secondhand story from Ray McGovern, former CIA officer. But Obama reportedly said, uh, well, look at what they did to Martin Luther King. And so you know, make of that what you will. Um, I guess I want to, I want to turn to uh, C. Wright Mills. And uh, one of C. Wright Mills' most uh, powerful ideas, one of his most famous, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, n- nuggets is the idea of crackpot realism. And it's a very powerful idea. And like it, it, it sums up a lot of like the Cold War, like point being that you could rationally create a system that through the rational maintenance of it at every step, you're, you know, behaving logically. But at each step, you just start bringing the world closer to annihilation, that you could potentially bring about the, the end of the world through rational means. And I'm wondering, like, you know, given your understanding of that or like that heuristic through viewing uh, policy and the behavior of the American state, is crackpot realism alive and well today? And like, where, where, where does we look in the world or like in U.S. policy today to see further, further evidence of this yeah, crackpot realism? I mean, yeah, of course it is, because look at some of these policies that we have seen in recent years. The coup in Ukraine, which people warned about, people like Mearsheimer, who said this is, will be perceived as an enormous threat to the Russians and this is going to result in disaster. Even the current CIA officer or CIA uh, head, right, Burns or whatever, uh, he, back in the day, he had, he said something very similar, uh, like in maybe 2008 or nine. This came out through WikiLeaks, but there's a memo where he's saying that every person in in Russia sees Ukraine as a existential, existentially important to uh, Russia, and that the idea of drawing of them joining a Western bloc is just you know anathema and terrifying. So these things were out there, but the idea of expansion uh, and uh, containment, I think containment of uh, never really ended as an idea. And in, in fact, what I, I, if I can get the podcast uh, going and successful enough, I really would like to be able to write a, a sequel to American Exception where I get into what happens after the, the Reagan, after Reagan takes over in geopolitical terms for the U.S. And the more that I think about it, I'm kind of maybe spoiling my own book here, but I think that those rollback crazies of the 50s and 60s that wanted to roll back communism uh, I think that they, in a way, are uh, victorious under Reagan and that the, the fall of the Soviet Union, which happened partly because of collapsing the oil prices at the perfect time, almost down to zero. I mean, like where well, viral oil is like in single digits. Right. And uh, that this this mentality of like going, sticking it to Russia, making sure that they could not only this dismembering the Soviet Union, but also. Uh, damaging Russia to uh, and weakening them to the point that they could never rise again, that this was sort of maniacally pursued by uh, the national security state. And we see it in its most above board in the expansion of NATO and, and putting these missiles around Russia, which they initially said were for Iran to protect against Iran, but everybody knew it was for Russia. And then also in these weird, dirty wars involving Al-Qaeda, all throughout the 1990s and where the U.S. uses al-Qaeda as its kind of sock puppet in Bosnia and Kosovo, uh, Chechnya, Azerbaijan. Uh, it, they try to use him to the al-Qaeda people to assassinate Gaddafi in 1997 with uh, MI6 being involved there. And then the, the Afghanistan war has to be seen in, as also as a way of like getting into that area, getting into Eurasia. And it's a kind of like a, a rollback or forward projection of U.S. power into more and more of the world. And that I think is, 
is very much a type of crackpot realism. And it shows that that has been the operant worldview and mentality since, uh, you know, for the last few decades. And it, 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 it brought about, I think, the end of the Soviet Union in some ways, and also the aggressive U.S. actions uh, after that, that they wanted to go for, they wanted to get rid of the bipolar world order to establish a unipolar world order with America as uh, ruling the world uh, in perpetuity. And if you want to read some vintage crackpot realism, Project for a New American Century, Rebuilding America's Defenses, it's uh, that mentality is uh, it's it's still with us. It's it didn't go away in the in C. Wright Mills after C. Wright Mills died. All right, I guess uh, Aaron, this is, my, this is my last question for you today. Um, so, like, you know, taking what we've, we've discussed, or like understanding that you know we are citizens of a country that is, you know, at best a managed democracy, and you know, in all likelihood, a totally fake one. But at the same time, we are still citizens of this country. We are still, in some sense, responsible for the conduct of you know the, the the world we live in or the place we find ourselves in. So like what would like as an indiv- just as an individual citizen and I know that doesn't leave people with much but what does effective resistance to like deep politics or the deep state look like? Is it even possible and like you know like what 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 lessons can we draw about what is sort of a productive way to talk about or even like resist and fight back against like these forces that we're talking about? Well, you're talking about the most powerful empire in human history, the wealthiest and the the deadliest, really, in terms of its uh, uh, real and potential, uh, you know, violent power. So this ex- kind of uh, accepting our powerlessness in some way, because we don't really live in a democracy, and somehow internalizing what that means, uh, I think in a way it could kind of get us to recognize that the stakes for some of these political arguments are not so high because we are so disempowered. And so coming coming at peace with these things is 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 important i think not the, the not, not lying to yourself is important not lying to people around you tell the truth as much as possible take care of your yourself and people around you to the extent that is possible and wait until conditions change because i, I think that historically speaking these world historic events are going to uh, relegate the U.S. empire to uh, the same state of all other empires in, in human history. Uh, empires fall, and that is going to happen. And uh, hopefully, uh, the human civilization isn't ended in the process. Although that's a real possibility because we have a uniquely set, uh, destructive set of weapons. But uh, the just accepting these, uh, trying to grapple with reality as best you can as much as you can and uh, doing speaking to people around you being out. If you're in any public forum, talk about things like the criminality of the state and uh, try and try to be as optimistic and realistic as you can about all of these issues, knowing that we don't live in a, in a country where there's uh, the ability to, for regular people to uh, impact power. And uh, that's, it's, it's harsh. It's a harsh reality, but in a way it's a little bit, there are aspects of it that are liberating because you can't you're you can't get uh, too upset about things that you can't control, or at least you can know that you shouldn't. <laughs> so if it's not, I I would love to be able to say like if you do this, then that'll solve the problems. Yeah. But unfortunately, I think that as things are going to, ch- if there's going to be change, it's going to be because of international uh, changes to the structure of the system, because that's the basis of all their power anyway, is control over the global political economy. And I think that that's slipping out of their hands. And I don't know where it's going after that, but it's certainly interesting and exciting. 
Well, President G, if you're listening to this show, you know what to do. Uh, thank you very much, Aaron Good. I want to thank you for your time. If people would like to uh, get a copy of American Exception or read uh, any, any other of your work, uh, what, what should they do? Where should they go? The book you can find, American Exception, Empire in the Deep State, you can find at places where you buy books. And the I have an AmericanException.com website with a small number of articles. We plan to get more up there, especially the American Exception podcast on Patreon. We have a lot of stuff on deep politics uh, and the political economy of U.S. empire and related subjects that if you found this discussion interesting, you would probably like the podcast. So I would uh, urge you to subscribe and you can hear hear more there. Links for uh, all the above will be in the episode description. Aaron Good, once again, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Will.